The following message was given at Emanuel Baptist Church, Coconut Creek, Florida. Okay, I think it's time for us to get started. Welcome this morning. It's good to see you on this uh, beautiful Lord's Day. It's nice to have some rain. It's been really, really dry. My yard was about to dry up. I was having to use the sprinklers on my yard. I don't like having to do that. So it's great to wake up this morning and fresh rain on the ground. Praise the Lord. Let's pray together. Our Father, we thank you today for a beautiful day that you have given to us, and especially that it's the Lord's Day, uh, which is a special day for your people. We thank you that we have this day and that you have ordered it and ordained it for our good and our blessing. And uh, Lord, it is a joy to be able to legitimately uh, step aside from other matters of life that can dominate our thoughts and our time and to be able to give ourselves to those things that are um, of greatest pleasure uh, to your people, the things of Christ and eternity and the worship of your great name and the hearing of your word and the fellowship of the saints. So thank you so much for this day. We pray your help for all of the Sunday school teachers as they teach our children and we ask that you would meet with us, that we would learn things today that would not just give us more information but would help us to be better Christians and better servants of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's in his name we pray, amen. All right, so this is church history. Uh, it's part of our rotation of, of uh, Sunday school classes that we have, about four different things we're doing. And this is actually the 66th lesson, can you believe that, that we've done on church history. And we're currently in the, oh yeah, wrong, wrong thing. My, um, let's see. What did I do here? There we are. So there's the major divisions and we've been in the Reformation period now for some time. And these are the things we've considered in the Reformation period. Um, and now we're looking at the progress and developments and conflict that followed the initial stages of the Reformation. The Lutherans with the Reformed Orthodoxy on the continent. And now in England, the Puritan era. Uh, 1559 to 1689. And so we're considering the Puritans. We've heard a lot about them. Who are they? Uh, just to remind you, they're serious Reformed Christians in England who were strongly committed to the Bible, who believed in the centrality of preaching and the necessity of personal conversion and practical piety, and who were advocating for a more thorough reform of the English church and its worship uh, to conform with the scriptures, and that was over against the partial uh, reformation that had been established by the Elizabethan settlement. And the Elizabethan settlement, that's language describing kind of the state of affairs in England after Elizabeth took the throne in 1558, and she reigned for a period of about 44 years. She was a very, what we might call moderate Protestant. And uh, the manner in which the Church of England was established by law under Elizabeth is what is described as the Elizabethan settlement. And it instituted only a partial reformation. By the act of supremacy, the monarch, not the pope, but the monarch now, was recognized as the supreme governor of the church. The 1552 Book of Common Prayer was established as the Anglican. That's 
how you describe the, the, uh, the established church, the Anglican church, uh, the 1552 book of order, uh, common prayer, excuse me, established the, the form of worship, uh, threatening severe penalties for any dissent from it. Various relics of the old Catholic worship remained, like priestly vestments and bowing before the elements of the Lord's Supper. Uh, the ecclesiastical structure of the Anglican Church that was established by the Elizabethan settlement was an Episcopal form of church government. That's a hierarchy of church leaders, bishops, who were appointed by the queen, usually those that were friendly to her political um, concerns and desires, and they had authority over the local churches and local ministers in various regions of the country. Well, again, Puritanism arose in England out of a desire to further uh, purify the church to bring about a more thorough reformation of its doctrine, practice, and worship. And this conflict in England, the Puritan era, it was a long one. It spanned the reign of several monarchs. Uh, first, there's Puritanism during the reign of Elizabeth, which we've already considered. That was a 44-year period. And then Elizabeth died without an heir, so that was the end of the Tudor dynasty in England. And the Stuart dynasty, uh, the next king was a Stuart king from the Stuart family, James I. He had been king of Scotland. Now he became king of England. And then we have uh, Puritanism under Charles I. And then we have the Civil War and the Commonwealth period, and then the uh, Charles II, James II, and then the Glorious Revolution, and that kind of marks the end of the, the Puritan period, the Glorious Revolution with William and Mary when they take the throne of England. Well, we finished the um, Elizabethan period, and we finished the period under James, and uh, there are basically three types of Puritans that have arisen, really we should say four types, and maybe even five, yeah. Okay, one, there were those who disliked certain things in the established church, but they decided to conform and uh, to focus all their energies on preaching and teaching sound doctrine. They felt that they could, they could follow along with the, the 39 articles, the doctrinal statement of the, the church, that that was sufficient, and that was a good doctrinal statement. As long as that was the case, they decided just to stay and conform and to focus on preaching and teaching sound doctrine. Uh, secondly, there were those who disliked not only vestments and other medieval Catholic rituals in the church, but they also believed the Anglican church needed reforming in its organization. Uh, some of them favored episcopacy, or they were okay with it, but they desired a simpler form that was more scripturally accountable, and others of them favored Presbyterianism. And these uh, determined not to be actively disruptive, but to focus, again, on preaching and teaching. And they were hoping by this means to gradually build a grassroots reformation that would result in an orderly and lawful reform of the church without some great social upheaval or revolution of some kind. And then there was a third category, a third Puritan group, and these were more aggressive Presbyterians who actively challenged the Anglican establishment and they advocated the more or less immediate dismantling of it. And these, these believed that Presbyterian church government was the only biblical pattern and that it ought to be established by law and dissent from it should not be tolerated. And then there was also another group, a fourth group, that gradually began to emerge. These are called separatists 
or independence. The, the language independence uh, comes from their view that each local church is a congregational church that governs its own affairs and is not under some hierarchy of, of uh, a bishop, uh, Episcopal hierarchy, or under a presbytery of some kind, but each church is independent in that sense. And so you had uh, that group begin to develop separatists, uh, some, of the, some of them were more radical in their separatism. They, they determined to separate from the established church completely. And there were also certain independents, I believe, who agreed with the concept of an established English church, but believed that it should be one in which each local church is allowed to govern itself. And, uh, and that allowed for different forms of local church government, I guess you could say. Well, we finished with a consideration of Puritanism under Elizabeth and then under James. And then last time we began to consider it under the reign of the next English monarch, Charles I. And he took the throne in 1625 and his reign was, uh, became the context of a massive, massive upheaval in English society. And it was partly fed by two things. One, his hostility to parliament and his hostility to Calvinism and he ruled without ever summoning the parla- parliament uh, from 1629 to 1640, 11-year period. And he also began to energetically promote what's been called the high church movement within the English national church. And this was an emerging movement that advocated an Anglican church that gave greater emphasis to the sacraments in its understanding of how we receive God's grace, very much like Roman Catholicism. It promoted the idea of the centrality of the Eucharist in worship, not preaching. The altar rather than the pulpit is to be the architectural focal point in the place of worship. And in fact, they remodeled many of the churches in England to to reflect that. Uh, There was also a focus on the sensory in worship, things like restoring altar lights, the use of incense and things of that nature. Now, this high church Anglicanism was also permeated by Arminianism. And Charles was committed to that kind of Anglicanism. It was an assault on Puritanism, but more than that, it was really an assault on the Reformed faith in general, much of which had a broad base of support within the Anglican church itself. And also, under Charles's reign, William Laud, who's kind of notorious in English history, William Laud, a high church Anglican, was appointed Archbishop of Canterbury. And that's, like the, high, that's the highest position uh, uh, in the Anglican church. And Laud used every means at his disposal to promote this high church vision, implementing various reforms that were very offensive to many of the English people. And it seemed to those who were observing these things that he was moving the church backward in a Roman Catholic direction. And with Charles' support, policies were also implemented that sought to silence any preaching he didn't like, which would be especially Calvinistic or Reformed preaching. And then to add insult to injury, Charles married the French Roman Catholic Princess Henrietta uh, Maria, it was largely a political marriage and move, but this meant that England now had a Roman Catholic queen, and that didn't sit well with a lot of English people. And so all of this will eventually culminate in the English Civil War, which we take up now in our lesson today. Everything else so far has been, been reviewed. So in our time remaining, we're going to look at the English Civil War. Uh, some factors that finally pushed things over the edge. Uh, 
Well, the first thing was the Covenanters movement in Scotland and the Covenanter invasion of England. And we're going to learn more about the Covenanters, God willing, later. But for our purposes now, uh, you may remember that when James took the throne of England, the thrones of Scotland and England were now united because King James, James was already the king of Scotland at that time. And so when he became the new king of England, those two kingdoms were united to one another. And James had managed through his political maneuvering to, to implement a kind of Episcopal form of government in the church in Scotland. Uh, it, was, it was pushed back and it was back and forth. I won't get into all that right now, but, but uh, he had uh, at least influenced the nobles in, in Scotland to accept this form of, of church government. And uh, James was the beginning of the Stuart line of kings after the last Tudor monarch, Queen Elizabeth. And, well, this unification of Scotland and England continued under Charles. But in 1637, Charles, at the encouragement of Archbishop Laud, ordered the church in Scotland to follow a liturgy. That's meant an order and manner of worship that was essentially identical to the church in England. Well, the Scots didn't like that. And a unified, resentful Scotland rose up in opposition to this. And in 1638, a national covenant to defend the true religion was signed by many Scotsmen. And in the same year, a Scottish General Assembly, an assembly of church representatives, rejected and threw out the entire Episcopal structure that James and Charles had erected. Well, Charles saw this as a cause for war. And there were two brief wars that followed what are called the Bishops' Wars. And you can probably see why they were called the Bishops' Wars, because the, the, the battle was over bishops, if you think about it. Bishops governing the church that were established by the crown. And it was called the Bishops' War. And Charles, in this, failed to overcome the Scots. And a Scottish army, a Covenanter's army, invaded the north of England. Well... This forced Charles to do something that he hadn't done in 11 years. What was that? He called the parliament. He was forced to summon an English parliament. And he did that first because he needed money. And he needed resources to deal with the crisis happening in the north with the Scots, which he could only get through parliamentary cooperation. But then also the covenanters themselves had stipulated that they would accept no treaty from Charles unless it was ratified by an English parliament. So he called the parliament. The first time he called them together, that, that one's called the short parliament. The reason it's called the short parliament because they only met for three weeks before Charles got really upset and concerned because of its rebellious mood, and he dissolved it. But he was in a bad position. He still needed their help. So in November 1640, the Long Parliament met. It's called the Long Parliament because it was the longest in English history since it was not dissolved until officially until 20 years later. And once again, Charles was faced with a parliament that was in a bad and rebellious mood. A parliament that was fed up with many of Charles's policies and that had no real wish to discuss the Scottish crisis. In fact, some of the leading MPs, members of the uh, the House of Commons, Parliament, they had been in correspondence with the Covenanters. And they treated them as allies against Charles. The goal of the MPs at this point was to make it impossible for Charles or any king ever to rule again 
without Parliament. So constitutional reform uh, dominated their agenda. And at this stage of things, the Parliament was united in this. There was no division between royalist and non-loyalist uh, royalist factions uh, in, in regard to... Uh, you know, kind of cutting down the king to size. But, but after cutting the king down to size with various moves and legislation, the parliament then began to focus on religion. And this is where things began to get a bit dicey. Uh, in the parliament, you had basically two factions, Puritan reformers, and you had those who were part of the Anglican establishment, though they were very unhappy with some of the policies of Charles and Laud. Well, the king, in a kind of a sneaky way, he, he began to cultivate the support of the more Anglican traditionalists. Now, they were not willing to give back to the king the kind of political power that they had taken from him, but they were devoted to Anglicanism over against the reform proposals of the Puritans. Well, without getting into all of the political and religious ins and outs that followed, eventually, the Puritan parliamentary leader, John Pym, submitted what has been called the great remonstrance to the House of Commons. And it detailed all the alleged failings and of Charles's regime since he came to the throne, contrasting that with the progress made so far by parliamentary reforms. And it also proposed two positive measures. One of them included, including setting up an assembly of theologians to help Parliament reform the church. Well, the Grand Remonstrance was passed, but only with a very small margin. The vote was 159 for and 148 against. Royalists, those uh, loyal to the king, royalist MPs, protested against the vote's outcome. A shouting match broke out. Swords were drawn in the parliament. But even then, there was still a chance civil war could be avoided. But all hope for that was lost when on January the 4th, 1642, Charles himself burst into the House of Commons with 400 armed men at his back to arrest the five MPs that he considered to be the leaders in the parliamentary faction uh, opposing him. And this was a shocking breach of parliamentary privileges. Uh, the, now the five MPs, they had been warned, so they weren't there. They had already, they were already in hiding, so Charles left empty-handed. But London was now seething with hostility toward the king. Within a week, Charles had left the city, leaving the capital in the hands of a largely rejoicing population who supported the parliamentary non-royalist cause, while the royalist MPs deserted the House of Commons and they set up their own parliament at Oxford. Civil war soon erupted with the first major battle fought at Edge Hill in Warwickshire on October 23rd, 1642. And this war would continue until 1648. On the one side, you had the parliamentarians, and they were nicknamed by the royalists, Roundheads. Now, when you, when you try to find out the reason they called them that, it's hard, there's all kinds of opinions because, you know, one, one, uh, one thing, you know, some people will say, well, because the Puritans wore their hair cropped off. Well, that's not really true. A lot of them had, you know, relatively long hair, we would say. 
there were also mechanics or those who uh, were apprentices who that, that tended to be the way they wore their hair cropped off and there were a lot of that class of people that were in the parliamentary army so that may be why they called them the roundheads but no one's really 100% sure why that was the nickname that they gave to them but that side consisted of the parliament the growing middle classes many of the lesser country gentry the great majority of Puritans and also the independents and the separatists including the Baptists. On the other side, you had the king, most of the nobility, and those who held to the established order and Catholic tradition in the Church of England. Now, the parliamentarians were nicknamed, or the royalists, excuse me, were nicknamed cavaliers. Now, that's a term that, you know, literally means horsemen, but it had come to, to mean something like swaggering licentious bullies. And this is the nickname they gave to them, the Cavaliers. Well, all the various battles and goings on in this war, they're very, very interesting if you like that kind of thing. But I'm not going to get too bogged down with all of that since our real concern in this class is the history of the church. But I do want to mention some things. Thirdly, some important events that occurred during the English Civil War. The first was the calling of the Westminster Assembly. And the English Parliament abolished the existing framework of the Church of England in 1643. But since there was still a general commitment at this time on the part of most of the Puritans to a single church state, the Parliament called for an assembly of theologians. And actually there were 121 theologians or pastors and 30 laymen who were called together in July 1643. They were to meet at Westminster Abbey in London in order to establish a new church order and confession of faith for the state church. Now this assembly was overwhelmingly made up of Puritan Presbyterians, although there were about 20 Reformed Episcopalians, and there were several Puritan Independents who were invited to the assembly as well. And then a little bit after it got started, also uh, several Covenanter theologians from Scotland joined the assembly, Alexander Henderson, Samuel Rutherford, George Glispie, and Robert Bailey. And they arrived in September, and their invitation, their arrival, uh, the arrival of the Scottish de delegation was the result of a new military alliance between the Parliament and Scotland called the Solemn League and Covenant. The Solemn League and Covenant. A covenant in which two, the two parties agreed to work for, quote, the reformation of religion in England and Ireland in doctrine, worship, discipline, and government according to the word of God and the example of the Reformed churches. So they signed a covenant together to commit themselves to that goal, the Scots and the English, and the Parliament, excuse me. <clears throat> the participants in the Westminster Assembly really reads like a who's who of many of the great Puritan preachers and writers. Uh, many of you would recognize some of the names as we still benefit from their published writings uh, that have come down to us today. And the, the assembly met on a regular basis from 1643 to 1647. It held 1,163 sessions. And you can, there are books that are available in, that are in print today where you can, you can read the minutes of those sessions. 
and dig really deep. And, and it's interesting to see the various debates that they had and discussions that they had about different theological perspectives and their understandings of hammering out uh, and agree, agreed understandings on various doctrinal positions and issues. And this went on for several years. <clears throat> and after it was done with this work, the assembly produced, it presented to the parliament for pr- approval, a directory for worship, the famous Westminster Confession of Faith, and the larger and shorter catechisms. A uh, Presbyterian form of church government was proposed by the majority, but it was never fully implemented. And this confession was approved by the Parliament in 1648. It was also adopted by the Scottish Kirk or Church as its new confession. And as many of you know, it's still the confession of conservative evangelical Presbyterians today. In a slightly modified form, it was adopted as the Savoy Declaration by English independent uh, Puritans and Congregationalists at their gathering in Savoy, London in 1658. That would include, for example, John Owen and Thomas Goodwin. It was also adopted by English Calvinistic Baptists, Reformed Baptists, though again it was modified at certain points to reflect Baptist views of church government and baptism. Uh, The Baptist version was set forth some years later in 1677, but it's come down to us as the 1689 Baptist Confession of Faith because that was the year in which 107 Reformed Baptist churches met by their delegates and signed their names to the confession. The reason they didn't do that earlier because it was illegal. Uh, this is a whole other story. We'll get into that later. And, uh, but after the glorious revolution with William and Mary in 1689, they, were, they had more freedom to, go pub, to be public with, with their convictions. And so... So both the independents and the Baptists, they both stated that they embraced the Westminster Confession, though in slightly modified form, in order to demonstrate their essential unity with their Reformed brethren on all the major issues of theology. So it came to represent a kind of biblical Reformed ecumenism between all Reformed Christians in England. And and in many ways, it still does uh, in, in the world at large today. A great accomplishment, the Westminster Confession of Faith. A second major event that occurred during the Civil War was the Archbishop Laud was arrested. After spending three years in prison, he was executed, 1645, by order of the Parliament. Well, let's pick up now thirdly with some important developments that occurred in the progress of the war itself. The Civil War did not go well for the king. By January of 1645, uh, having learned from various mistakes that they made at the beginning of the war, the Parliament had reorganized its infantry and cavalry into a more centralized, streamlined force that was known as the New Model Army. And Sir Thomas Fairfax uh, had been appointed commander-in-chief, but the real genius of this and the dominant leader was the second in command, the House of Commons member, Never had been a soldier before. Who, the House of Commons member turned soldier and then a brilliant, proved to be a brilliant cavalry leader, Oliver Cromwell. Now Cromwell was a sincere, devoted Christian who had been converted in his youth and he was a fervent Puritan. But he was an independent, not a Presbyterian. And that's going to be important. Now, the king's army suffered devastating defeats at the hands of Cromwell. 
at Marston Moor in July 1644, the Battle of Naseby in June 1645. Indeed, Cromwell never lost a battle during his entire military career. And something that, that really plays greatly into the events that follow is that Cromwell's approach to military training, it actually tended to undermine Parliament's control of its own troops. How is that? Well, he insisted on recruiting religiously and politically motivated soldiers, soldiers who would fight for victory without being hampered by a fawning social respect for the aristocracy and the king that sometimes made others half-hearted in battle. And because of this, the backbone of Cromwell's new model army were largely independents and Baptists in persuasion because Presbyterians tended to be much more politically conservative and much in, in conserving some of the old order uh, of uh, uh, certain hierarchy in, in, in the society. Furthermore, the new model army, as it developed and as the war progressed, was no longer fighting for exactly the same goals as its parliamentary masters. The Presbyterian-dominated parliament wanted a single established church that was Presbyterian in structure and theology with no room for dissent and with all who refused to conform being punished by the magistrates. By contrast, the bulk of Cromwell's army thought of themselves as fighting for liberty of conscience and for the freedom of all Protestants to practice their faith without interference or coercion by king, bishops, parliament, or presbyters. And independents and Baptists were the most devoted uh, to this concept of religious toleration and Cromwell himself held to these views. Well, eventually, Charles, finding himself without an army, surrendered in 1646 to the Scots, who then turned him over to their allies, the English. And the result now is that England became gripped by a three-entity power struggle. You had Charles, you had the Presbyterian Parliament, and you had the new model army. All jockeying for position now. Well, while being held in custody, Charles tried to play off the army against the parliament by making contradictory promises. And this is something he was known for. He, he, he seemed to have the view that as long as you know, the, the ends justify the means, so he didn't have a problem with lying. He was, a, I guess you could say, a typical politician, maybe. So... He made uh, complimentary promises to try to play the army against the parliament. But then ultimately he betrayed both the army and the parliament by entering into a secret agreement with a faction of the covenanters who themselves were not happy with the army's demand for religious toleration. They too wanted only Presbyterianism. So Charles tried to take advantage of this and in July 1648 a faction of Scottish covenanters invaded England to restore the king. They just, just before this, remember, they'd been allies. of, But now they're invading England to restore Charles because Charles had made all these promises to them. And certainly he was lying, but he promised them that he would impose Presbyterianism in England as the church structure. And royalists across Wales and England joined with them. However, Cromwell and the new model army were up to the challenge and crushed these uprisings and at the three-day battle of Preston, on August 17th and 19, Cromwell totally annihilated the Scottish army. Well, what happened after that? 
Well, the Presbyterian-dominated Parliament of England, however, now they reopened negotiations with King Charles. And as a result of this, the army was now fed up, we might say, with both the king and the parliament, and the army marched on London and expelled from the parliament a list of Presbyterian MPs that they considered to be intolerant. And by the time the purge was over, it's called Pride's Purge, over 45 MPs were under arrest and a further 96 had been excluded from Parliament. And the much-reduced House of Commons now had only 80 MPs and all of them were independents. It was derisively called by its enemies the Rump Parliament. And by the way, Cromwell had no direct part in the army marching on London purging the parliament he was not in London at the time though he was on his way there and still when he arrived he arrived after this had all occurred he accepted what had happened and what followed soon after was the execution of King Charles he was tried and condemned for treason and for his crimes and beheaded on January the 30th 1649 and you know the history is depends on whether you're a Roman Catholic or you're a Presbyterian or whether you're an Anglican or you know there's all kinds of histories that have been written and you're going to come across all kinds of different opinions as to whether the parliament was justified in executing the king or not and uh, so I'll, I'll leave that for God to decide on on the last day but there's good arguments for why they did it they believed he, he had committed treason against the English people and that uh, he deserved to be executed and then there's others who say well no they shouldn't have done that so well anyway this led to the establishment of an English republic, uh, and it lasted for 12 years. It's often referred to as the English Commonwealth period. Sometimes it's called the Puritan Interregnum, without a king, a regent. It's a, it's a period without a king, the Puritan Interregnum, and it's called that sometimes because Puritan influences held the upper hand politically during this time under the leadership of Oliver Cromwell. Cromwell now governed England as Lord Protector, something like a prime minister, and this was under a written constitution that was drawn up uh, by the leading army officers. So was it a legal constitution or not? Well, in some ways it was like a, uh, a, a military coup, one could argue. But then there's other arguments on the It's a very interesting time in history. It's one of my favorite periods to read about. I'm always trying to get more books to read about this period. I just finished a, a long ago a, a biography on Charles I that was quite interesting. And, um, but it's a very interesting time. Um, so he was made the Lord Protector, kind of prime minister. There's no king anymore. Also, the Rump Parliament passed the Toleration Act in 1650, which abolished any legal requirement to attend one's parish Anglican church. It was an unparalleled period of religious freedom in England, and that freedom was extended in toleration to independence, to Baptists, and either to, uh, even to other kind of weirdo fringe groups that were out there. Freedom was extended to, to most, most of these religious groups. And even to some degree to Jews as well. Uh, and that's another story we could get into under Cromwell. 
But we're not to think it was just a completely unorganized free-for-all. Cromwell was a sincere Puritan, independent Christian. He was concerned to provide for the spiritual nourishment of the English people, and he sought to encourage cooperation between the various non-royalist uh, Protestant groups. In 1654, in fact, he appointed a commission of what were called triers, triers, and their job was to examine candidates for the ministry. And the London Committee of Triers consisted of 38 men from among both independents and Presbyterians and even some Baptists. And in some cases, even Anglican ministers were allowed to remain in their parishes as long as they were not politically active royalists. Now, among the triers in London were some very famous independent ministers you may have heard of, names like Thomas Goodwin, Philip Nye, John Owen. Among the Presbyterians, names like Thomas Manton and Stephen Marshall. And they worked together as triers in, in examining men for the Christian ministry and their qualifications to be in the ministry, and whether it be in an independent church or in a Presbyterian church, and in some cases, Baptist as well. So this is where we'll leave things for now. England was now a republic instead of a monarchy. But this is only going to last for 12 years. Cromwell, the Lord Protector, died in 1658. His son Richard Cromwell succeeded him. And he was, a, by all accounts, he was a good man, a, uh, a kind man, a, a morally upright man. But he lacked the gifts and the force of character and control of the army. Uh, that marked his father and troubles began to break out and a measure of chaos began to break out in the country and within two years it's amazing in two years 1660 after Cromwell's death the more politically conservative Puritans especially the Presbyterians combined with what remained of the Episcopal party to bring back the exiled son of Charles I Charles II and to put him on the throne. And he made a bunch of promises, which will prove to be lies, again, to them. And some of these more politically conservative Puritans are going to live to deeply regret that they brought him back, as we're going to see, God willing, later. So there you go. So God willing, next time we'll take up with Charles I and get to the Glorious Revolution, and hopefully we'll be able to finish uh, with the Puritan period, God willing, next time. I think I teach class this class next week too, so. Okay, any questions or comments? Are you totally lost? Huh? Yeah. That was awesome. I really like that lecture. I was curious, was there any so the Baptists were allowed in the new model army, were there any like that came of prominence? Like Don't know. I don't know. I haven't dug that deeply to know. That's a good question. They're allowed in the army and they were It'd be interesting to know if there were any Baptists in, in uh, you know, there were officers in the army. That would be something. You should write a dissertation on that when you work on your PhD. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Yeah. So during all of this period of history, the church and the state, like the church and government, were connected. Yeah. Yeah, we're still there at this point. And, but it's, you can tell that that, she, she said, so during all of this period of history, the church and state are still connected, and that's true. But you're, you can see how we're beginning to see the gradual crumbling of that perspective beginning to happen in connection with what's happening in England with the Puritans with the English Civil War. 
And uh, Cromwell, in many ways, was ahead of his time because he believed in extending religious toleration to all of these groups, allowing them to worship freely uh, in the country. And uh, that was radical for that time period, but it was a step, I think, a step forward in, in uh, the right direction. Of a, a, it, it, when we think about the Reformation, I think we should always remember that the Reformation, it wasn't like a, a full Reformation in the sense of everything was reformed perfectly to the Scriptures in one generation. It was a process. There's a process. And, this, and uh, I think this is part of the process. This is why I guess I'm a, a proud Baptist. That I, I like to say that the Baptists just took the Reformation a further step than our, our uh, pedo-Baptist brothers. And, uh, but yes, yes. Awesome. I said awesome. <laughs> they had a lot of brewers in the family, by the way, so I think our relative was a, a famous brewer. We went to his home in, in Ely, uh, England, got to see his home. And uh, I've enjoyed reading biographies about him. There's two biographies mm. I'd recommend. One is by Merle Dovinier, who himself was an evangelical author. Uh, and, uh, it, you know, it's sort of And then another one written by a Roman Catholic, and Roman Catholics are typically very critical of Cromwell because of uh, some of his exploits in Ireland. But she actually gives a more positive uh, mm -hmm. view And uh, Fraser is the last name I can't Antonio, Antonio Fraser. Okay. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Or Antonia, something like that. Yeah. yeah, when I read that book, I couldn't tell if, she was, if it was a girl or a boy because the name sounded like a, a, um, a man, but... It is a female. Yep. For the French queen, no push by the French to try and influence perspective. Yeah, I can't remember the details, but I, I, I seems I recall that Charles, you know, there were overtures to the French to get involved and to help, but they never did really. Not not in a overt kind of way. They didn't. Mm -hmm. Anybody else? Well, I, I, I thought that probably that it'd be interesting for you, you folks to, to know where the Westminster Confession came from. What was the context? You, had, you think about, you know, like I said, it reads like a who's who of great Puritan theologians that were brought together for that four or five year period. And these men are intensely studying the scriptures, discussing, debating the best way to state these different doctrines of Scripture, and we're, we're still to this day amazed at the pre precision and the clarity and the carefulness with which the Westminster Confession has been written and continues to be useful, very useful down to our present day. And that was in God's providence that he orchestrated that those events would occur as they did. Okay, I think we're ready to go unless you have, we've got maybe one minute, two minutes, anybody else? Okay, let's pray. Father, we thank you this morning for the opportunity to consider these things. It is good for us to know about our heritage and the great upheavals and struggles of men over the centuries. Lord, the mistakes, the errors that men and nations have made 
and also the, uh, the good things that have been done. We pray you'd help us to be able to um, sift out that which is bad and to hold to that which is good. And now, Father, we pray that you would help us now as we prepare to come before you to worship your great name. Grant that we would have a proper sense of reverence before you and also confidence and joy in our hearts because of your saving mercies that you have poured out upon us in your Son. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. We hope you were edified by this message. For additional sermons, as well as information on giving to the ministry of Emmanuel Baptist Church and on our current building project, you can visit us online at ebcfl.org. That's ebcfl.org.